Did you know that you could use AP Automation as an entry point to offering client accounting services? A successful transformation from clunky manual processes to automated processes can lead to your clients wanting even more of the services your firm can provide. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Bill.com, later in the episode. Your campaign has said that you would eventually release your tax records when it comes to transparency, but people are already voting now. Why should Democratic voters have to wait? It just takes us a long time. Unfortunately or fortunately, oh, can I comment on that? Fortunately, I, I make a lot of money and we do business all around the world and we are preparing it. The, the, the number no. of pages will probably be thousands of pages. I can't go to TurboTax. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Timesheets.com. Any guess to what Timesheets.com does? If you said employee time tracking for small to medium-sized businesses, you are partially correct. If you said robust time tracking for payroll, billing, or job costing with mobile access and real-time reporting, you're even more correct. But Timesheets.com is way more than time tracking. It includes employee HR records, paid time off, mileage, and expense tracking. It's all included. There aren't any monthly base fees. You just pay per employee to get all the Timesheets.com features, time, expense, and HR in one place. Timesheets.com is offering listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast two free months of service. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash timesheets. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash T-I-M-E-S-H-E-E-T-S. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by BQE Core. If you're focused on niche clients that are architects, engineers, consultants, or lawyers, BQE is the app for them. And BQE Succeed is the conference for you to best connect with companies in those niches. BQE Succeed is happening from May 31st to June 3rd, 2020 at the Encore at Wynn Las Vegas. And listeners can get $200 off registration by using code CAP2020. The Cloud Accounting Podcast will be there. Will you? Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash BQE Succeed. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash B-Q-E-S-U-C-C-E-E-D. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Happy Sunday, David. We're recording on a Sunday instead of a Friday. Yeah, I was on plane flights, so I could not record for two reasons. A, the neighbors sitting next to me on the airplane flight would like it, <laughs> but Delta didn't have any Wi-Fi on the flight. Like That's the like, worst. Can you believe like what, what world do we live in that the Wi-Fi was out? I had that happen. Well, I fly Southwest and their Wi-Fi has been terrible recently. I think it's because it's eight bucks, right? So everybody buys it. And if everybody buys it, then nobody can use it. So I just preload Amazon Prime movies and TV shows onto my iPad now. And I don't even try to work on anything where I need the internet. It's just not worth it. It's too frustrating. So we're back to where we started. No Wi-Fi. <laughs> Downloading movies. Yeah. You know who has the best Wi-Fi in my experience is Alaska Airlines. They have the newest satellite service. I don't know if it's GoGo. I think it's GoGo. And it is unbelievably fast. But is that because they just go up and down the West Coast? I think it's, good service? it's a lot easier for them to do that. And so if I'm flying to Seattle and back, man, it's so great. It's super fast, disturbingly fast, actually. So if you, if you fly Alaska buy the go-go just to see what it's like. And I think part of the reason it's fast is because they price discriminate, which we were talking about on an earlier episode. If there's more demand, you got to charge more. And that keeps too many people from hogging the bandwidth, right? Like that's the way it should be. I'm in favor of all of that kind of stuff. Like we should have dynamic pricing for freeways in Los Angeles, right? Like if you want to get on the freeway at a, a low traffic time, like in the middle of the day, really cheap, 
you don't pay even, but like during high traffic times a day, we start charging admission. It, it would solve the traffic problems. People would decide to work from home instead of driving to the office, right? Businesses would either have to pay for their employees to come in or they'd let them work from home. Yeah. I think this is the solution. Limited resources, price discrimination is the way to go. Economic theory totally backs this up. At one time, that's where you would treat the internet in your house. Mm-hmm. And then at one time, you'd have to treat your bandwidth and be sensitive about your bandwidth on your phone. Right. But because nowadays you don't have to be sensitive about your bandwidth, but the airplane is still somewhat limited. And But everybody's yeah. streaming, they're doing all this other stuff. And yeah, I get it. We well, can't any- solve those problems though. <laughs> anyway, there was some really big news this week. Tons of follow-up on stories on my beat, the PCAOB, FASB, stuff on your beat, Intuit is trying to make a big acquisition. I've got a story about a CFO who got his job because he has a tattoo. I mean, it's just been, it's a great week for news. Gusto and um, Rippling kind of went at it publicly, literally publicly. They (laughs) did, yes. There's a tie-in to the Nevada caucuses to TurboTax. Can't believe that came up. All sorts of stuff. So what should we start with? Let's uh, start with the breaking news that I woke up to this morning. This is the Intuit news. Intuit news, right? So Intuit near deal to buy Credit Karma for $7 billion. You got the Wall Street Journal version of this article? I've been using it for a long time. Have you used it before? So I am a Credit Karma user. I was using it for a long time to get my credit report periodically. That's how they started, right? They sign up, you get a free credit report, and they just let you know every few months when you're eligible, hey, your credit report is here. We already grabbed it for you. So really helpful. And it used to be really like a cool tool for you to, and this is at one time, it was more of a, a true tool. Like you would pull down your credit reports and then you could uh, mock things in there as a tool. Like, hey, what if I paid off these credit cards early? How would this possibly affect my score? Oh, you could cool. really do a lot of those types of things. And then their business model was to stick offers for their credit cards and things like that. Yeah. And which is really similar to the old Mint model. Right. Right. I, I, always, I always thought that was really funny because here are people going to a site to get their credit report so they can arguably improve their credit. And then the company giving them the free credit report is selling them credit cards that will get them further into debt. Well, that's what your credit score <laughs> is. It, it, it's it's the your credit score is not your ability to pay back. It's the how susceptible are you to take out another loan? Like that's how you get the higher scores. Wait, no, no. no. Maybe we're talking about it differently, but I thought your credit score was, it was a, if, if the thing that will hurt your credit score the most is if you are delinquent on like credit card payments, right? So as long as you're, I guess as long as you're paying the minimum payment, you're fine. But also if you have like a ton of uh, debt and you don't have a lot of like, what what do you call it? The the amount that the credit card issuer will allow you to go up to your balance, like your your, your max limit, your max limit, right? Yeah. If you're like way maxed out, then that'll give you bad credit. But if you don't take out debt, Right, right. You, like, your finances are tight, right? You, you're tons of cash. You, you don't take out debt. Your score's not as good as somebody who t- has debt. Oh, like, I know. It's fundamentally That's flawed. True. Like, the funniest it's not, thing it's was not an indication of your ability to pay back debt at all. The funniest thing was after I bought my house, my credit score hit the max. <laughs> I started making payments on a mortgage, and now I really am a bad candidate for anything because I have, you know, I have a mortgage. I have the most debt I've ever had in my whole life, and now my credit score is like eight hundred something. Exactly, because they got you. 
Right. That's why your credit score is so high. You really can't afford to take on any more debt, but they're going to give it to you because you've been paying. I'm like, locked. I'm locked in now. I've got this house. Yeah. I got to buy furniture and stuff. But then Credit Karma got into. They actually uh, started doing taxes. They kind of created their own TurboTax yes. like product. So they were they were creeping in on some of into arguably into its territory. And the really important part of this, though, that you didn't mention, is their tax product is totally free. Yes. So how does Credit Karma make money is the question. And by the way, my brother uses Credit Karma. I found that out this weekend when he was visiting. So he used Credit Karma to file his taxes. He just got his re- a refund. So how, like, how do they make money if they don't charge? So Intuit's been also competing with them. So Intuit started offering um, credit reports inside of Mint. And then Intuit, it's confusing because Intuit had this product. They were they kept branding and they had marketing and it was called Turbo. Yes. Have you seen that? I tried and, it actually. Which is weird because like TurboTax, it was, just, it was like a mixed weird message, right? What, what yeah. does that product do? Even myself, I was like, to, I had to work backwards. Oh, this is kind of like a credit karma type thing yeah, direction they're going, yeah. right? And so obviously Intuit wants to get in that space. And my understanding credit karma, it's all data play. It's it's one of those t- like Facebook, right? Yep. If you're not paying for the product, you are the product. So they collect your data. You give them permission to use your data because you're filing these tax returns. They have all this information about you and then they can sell you products and they can sell your data to other companies to sell you products, right? Yep. It's obviously $7 billion worth of data they've collected. Yeah. It's it's a good business model. So think about this. So HoneyBook, we talked about a few months back, HoneyBook or PayPal bought HoneyBook for $4 billion. And a HoneyBook did is basically watched every website you went to. And if it was a shopping cart, it would find a coupon code, but they're recording everything you're doing shopping wise. Yeah. But that's only browsing you do on the web. Honey, honey, it wasn't HoneyBook. It was called Honey. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, HoneyBook's an, an app for like wedding photographers and wedding planners. So scratch that. So don't say HoneyBook. It's just Honey. But they only see what you browse on your web. They don't see any of the other financial transactions. Right. But Credit Karma sees, they don't see the data of the transactions, but they know who you get money from, money you owe, et cetera, your payment structure. But then you think about on the Intuit side, the Mint side, because of the APIs can do your bank accounts. So they, now, now Intuit has a full picture of what you're doing. So that's your theory then. So your theory is that Intuit just wants more data about consumers from transaction to tax return. All, all to debt, all that stuff altogether is more valuable. So that's why they're buying Credit Karma. Or they're trying to. They, they haven't done it yet. They're going to try. They haven't done it yet. I mean, I've always fundamentally, even decades ago, like I've always hated the credit reporting agencies. Early on when I, in my credit junior journey, you know, I was like 21, 22, and I got my credit report for the first time. And it showed that I had a credit card from JCPenney's in 1973, even though I wasn't even born until 1974. And I, I was just, this is a complete racket. Like none of the data is correct, et cetera. And I always thought that somebody like Intuit had the ability to disrupt the whole credit reporting play. Yeah. Long term, yeah, yeah. and if you really think about it, Equifax had they were hacked. Like there, there's a, there's probably an opportunity to dis- disrupt these three major credit bureaus somewhere. Well, well, so here's my theory: Credit Karma does taxes for free, and that is an existential threat to TurboTax, which the way TurboTax monetizes is by charging you to do your taxes, and they take it out of your refund. But how do you compete against a completely free product like Credit Karma? Meanwhile. All of this controversy around the free file program, we just talked last week about the inspector general's report laying down the law that these free file companies, including TurboTax, misled us and redirected people who shouldn't have paid into a paid product. So there's no way going forward, you know, even if Intuit slow plays this compliance, TurboTax slow plays getting people into the correct products, it's not like the number of customers they get paying for TurboTax is going to increase. I don't think that long-term it is. And 
there are some analysts who think that too. Uh, there was an article in Accounting Today on February 14th from Bloomberg News. Uh, apparently, an analyst at Morgan Stanley called out that this whole free file scrutiny is a risk for Intuit and TurboTax monetizing their paid service offerings. So what better way to hedge your bets than to acquire not only a big competitor to you, but one that offers a free product. So now nobody can complain. Well, People if, are if assuming they keep the free product. I mean, because they, they say that they're going to keep Credit Karma as a separate company. Well, you know, they always say that. They always say that at the beginning, but then they don't, right? So I could see the Credit Karma product being a separate standalone product. Because it's yeah. very clear what it does. So you'd have Mint, you have Credit Karma, or you have TurboTax, right, on the personal mm-hmm. side. And then I could see into it just pulling the plug on the Credit Karma tax product because that's just like confusing the market, right? Oh, no, no. And see, I, I think see they'll keep it. Just so they can answer to regulators or something eventually. That's the growth opportunity is because people aren't going to complain about Intuit funneling all the all those people who Intuit was funneling into their paid products that should have gotten free file, right? Those millions of people. I think there might be tens of millions. They were paying. Intuit knows they can't have them pay anymore. Well, the only option other than losing all that revenue is to funnel them somewhere else. And they have to funnel them to a free product. And this is a free product that they can push them to. The fact that their data is being mined is something that uh, may come up, but probably not. Because people thus far, it seems, in our society don't really care too much about their personal data. Most people are happy to use Facebook and and give away their data for free to like Credit Karma and all that stuff just to get the product. Yeah. Or so, surf Google and be cookied and stuff. People just don't care. They, they could have bought Plaid for $5.3 billion instead, though. Like that would have been the- like- But Plaid's going to has to go to war with the banks, right? So I think this is a really smart move. I think this is a great way to basically put aside a bunch of risk. Yeah. That they had from this free file thing. And if I had to bet any money, credit card was using Plaid. <laughs> <laughs> well, but what would they be using Plaid for? Like, because credit card doesn't pull in transaction data. I think you can. I think you can. So it has like what's on your credit report. And I think there's options in there for you to hook up, link up your bank accounts mm. as well. Interesting. I'll have to look and see. I mean, I, I just, I literally like, twice a year open up credit card. Just a sanity check, right? I'm just like, yeah, hey, let's make sure no accounts are making me late on every payment for some crazy reason. Or, or Before we put this story to rest, the funniest part was reading through the Wall Street Journal comments. It's all the Mint people saying, maybe they should fix Mint first. Because, <laughs> you know, there's some Mint diehard users who are like just constantly complaining about how Intuit doesn't invest it, in Mint. It, on Twitter, I saw the same thing. Like, remember what they did to Mint? Yeah. They did nothing to Mint. <laughs> they, they turned <laughs> Mint, actually, they turned Mint into QuickBooks self-employed. The mint product itself just got neglected. Yeah, because nobody would pay for it. <laughs> right. Um, right. Self-employed, so they added enough features for a small business owner, self-employed, and they were and a self-employed person's willing to pay ten bucks a month for that, but nobody was willing to pay ten bucks a month for mint. That's funny. Well, uh, let's let's talk about other breaking news. Did you see Bernie Sanders won Nevada? Pretty substantial win. Well, the impressive thing here is. They actually announced a winner, which I still don't think we've heard for <laughs> Iowa yet, right? Yes. And that is actually the tie-in to our show. We don't want to talk necessarily uh, Bernie versus Trump. You can go elsewhere for that. We want to talk about the tie-in to two things, unbelievably, two things tied in. So let's talk about the first one, which is that Nevada, after the whole debacle in, it was Iowa? In Iowa. With the app. So at, Iowa had this app that they were going to use from a company called Shadow, which is the first warning that you shouldn't 
use this company, a political app company called Shadow. They were going to use this app to tally up all their caucus results. And of course, the boomers, you know, it was an okay boomer moment. It had to have been, I don't know what happened exactly, but the app didn't work. People were trying to call in their results. It, it was a disaster and the app got blamed for it. So Nevada said, oh crap, we've got our caucus coming up. We, and they were using the same company, Shadow. Yeah. And so they said, they said very intelligently, we're not going to try to fix this. We're going to scrap it. And they, I, I don't know, David, maybe somebody in the Nevada Democratic Party was listening to the Cloud Accounting Podcast because they followed our instructions, our recommendations. A Google form and a Google sheet. Yes, to the T. So they, they bought iPads provided by the party and sent an iPad to each caucus site and loaded it with a link to a Google form. And there was a password for each person to enter their results into a Google form, which then went into a spreadsheet, which had all the calculations necessary to calculate the winner. And, and the, the, the funny thing about this is all the news media outlets declared the victor after 1% of the caucuses reported reported in. So, yeah. they, so they spent all this money, they shipped this out to all these caucuses, and, and ultimately they didn't need those totals anyways. <laughs> well, but, but the key is you don't want something conflicting coming out while the press are calculating their own results because that is what torpedoes everything, right? Because then the press can't report. Yep. They, they don't feel safe, and which has happened in Iowa, I think. So this was a huge victory. It's a huge victory for the kind of automation that you and I talk about all the time and that we talk about in our online cloud accounting community, which is, uh, as, as Doug Sleater called it, uh, digital plumbing, figuring out how to connect apps using off-the-shelf software like Google Forms and Google Sheets. And I mean, they didn't use Zapier in this case, but they probably could have. It's really cool. And it shows you what you can do with some off-the-shelf technology. You don't need to go build your own app. Well, yeah, it's, it's, you don't need to over-engineer things. And it's a yes. testament, again, to that whole, if you can do it with Excel, don't build it on, don't build an app. And it's just kind of the same thing. Like it, it, It's this victory here for Excel and, and sheets levers everywhere. This is a victory for spreadsheets right here. It was pretty great. And uh, it's transparent. I, I think it, what I would love to see that next level up where the spreadsheet itself, now maybe the form's not public. But the spreadsheet is public view only. Yeah, you could And do that. anybody with the URL could go and watch the spreadsheet. That's being populated. And to be honest, that would create um, uh, less risk of hacking yeah. across the board. If you have a million people all watching this at the same time, it's very hard for funny business to happen. So meanwhile, the Nevada debate happened and Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg, made it into his first Democratic debate and became an advertisement for TurboTax, apparently. I was watching this when I heard TurboTax and my ears perked up. So there was a question here, and this is uh, summarized in a CNBC article called Bloomberg Botches Tax Return Question in Democratic Debate. I can't go to TurboTax. And I'm just going to play this segment of the debate for you, David, because I don't think you heard it. No, I did not. Your campaign has said that you would eventually release your tax records yes. when it comes to transparency. But people are already voting now. Why should Democratic voters have to wait? It just takes us a long time. Unfortunately or fortunately, oh, can I comment on that? Fortunately, I, I make a lot of money 
and we do business all around the world, and we are preparing it. The, the, the number no. of pages will probably be thousands of pages. I can't go to TurboTax. <laughs> but I put out my tax return every oh, year yeah. for That's 12 nice years day. in City Hall. We will put out this one. It says, tells everybody everything they need to know about every investments that I make and where the money goes. And the biggest item is all the money I give away. And we list that, every single donation I make. And you can get that from our from our foundation anytime you want. Okay, yeah, I'm just looking at my husband in the front row that has to, like, do our taxes all the time. Um, we probably could go to TurboTax. And the point of this is I believe in transparency. So that was uh, Mayor Bloomberg responding to a question about why he hasn't put out his tax return yet when many of the other candidates have, saying, I can't go to TurboTax. Uh, that, that was pretty funny. And then, of course, Elizabeth Warren repeated TurboTax. It came out twice. Uh, so I guess we can say in summary, David, that all people are tax people except Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> so any of you listeners that have Excel skills? I'm sorry, not Excel. You all have Excel skills. Any of you have video editing skills? I would love to see somebody take the video of the people dancing in the TurboTax ad, the tax people video, yes, um, and make Bloomberg, actually just make all the candidates in the video. That'd be even better. But I would love to see Bloomberg doing the uh, all people tax people dance. We might have to ask Will Lopez over at Gusto to do that because yes. I think he's the only person, the only accountant with video editing skills. Video editing skills. Yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, Bloomberg basically blew it with that answer, and he, you could hear the boos uh, from the audience in that. I wonder you know, how, how he does get his taxes done. I'd be curious to hear more about that. So that is all of the political news for the week. Actually, he said that he's released the last 12 years when he was mayor of New York. Right. So you could actually go track one of those down, Blake, and see who did his taxes, right? I could. The sign preparer would be on them. I could. Maybe I'll do that. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Just out of wondering. <laughs> Uh, okay, so what is next in terms of big news? I have PCAOB and FASB follow up. I don't want to put you to sleep, David, though. So maybe we should well, cover. Something why don't else? you talk about another billionaire? What's that? Didn't uh, something uh, Warren Buffett had like a huge profit? Yes, Warren it's Buffett. Your beat, right? It's because yeah. of the accounting rule that you hate. Well, just one of the accounting rules that I hate. Warren Buffett wrote his annual letter to Berkshire Hathaway uh, shareholders. And it's sort of a mixed year for Berkshire Hathaway because they had one of their best years ever. The Oracle of Omaha earned for his shareholders $81.4 billion last year, which is a humongous increase from the year before. Let's see if I can find those numbers. Yes, a 1,900% increase, 1,900% increase in earnings from the year before. Here's the thing. Out of that 81.4 billion, 53.7 billion of the 2019 profit was due only to an appreciation in the value of the stock holdings of Berkshire. And this is due to an accounting change that Warren Buffett called out last year. He's been complaining about it. He thinks it's terrible. And he said it again that he thinks it's stupid. Starting in 2018, the rule is now that companies holding stock like Berkshire, which is in a lot of cases a big holding company, they have to include the unrealized gains on the stock that they aren't selling, they haven't sold in their net income, which for Berkshire, it's a lot of stock, right? When the market does well and the S&P 500 surges by, what, 20%, 30%, then they're going to have humongous gains. And Warren Buffett thinks this is a terrible idea. 
He said that the earnings reports filed under the new system, quote, glaringly illustrate the argument we have with the new rule. In what we might call the real world, as opposed to accounting land, Berkshire's equity holdings averaged about $200 billion during the two years, and the intrinsic value of the stocks we own grew steadily and substantially throughout the period. So he says that accounting land has different rules than the real world. And wow, this is perfect. I love this, this concept of accounting land. Like, oh, this is genius. I, I love it. I think we need to uh, get some investors and we need to build accounting land. And we can have PCAOB land. We can have FASB land. <laughs> no, it's just, it, it, it's, it's like, never, it's like Neverland where nobody actually has to grow up. Like accounting yeah. lands where it's just like, it's all the stuff nobody actually cares about. <laughs> like, but, but the people on accounting land care about it. Right, right. But, so anyway, the, the, the argument against this rule, this mark to market rule, is that it creates these huge swings in net earnings that you shouldn't have because unless you're a company that your business model is to trade in stocks, you're buying and holding. Right? So why are you recognizing those gains in your net income? It just distorts operating income. And I think if Warren Buffett thinks this is a bad idea, maybe we should listen to him, given that he's the greatest investor to ever walk the earth, as some people like to say. So what do you think? Would he still be against it if it worked the other direction? Well, the thing is, it did work the other way, like in past years, and he complained about it then too. Okay. Right. So he, he's against it, no matter whether it works for his benefit or against him. He's all about that long term. And this distorts that. Yeah, that's oh. Buffett. Uh, billionaires and their problems. <laughs> right, let me show you. Do you have any more billionaire articles this week or can we like, stop talking about them? We can stop talking about the billionaires. No more Bloomberg news. No more Buffett news. Yeah. What's next? We can talk about hacking. Okay. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Bill.com. Small businesses want client accounting services. In the 2019 Bill.com Hire slash Fire Index Survey of Small Businesses, more than half prefer to hire accounting firms that offer a wide range of accounting, tax, and financial services. Another 40% said they would hire a firm based on its ability to offer proactive advice about their businesses. And 48% said they would stop referring their accounting firm if it could not offer strategic advice. An easy way to offer profitable client accounting services in your firm is to start with accounts payable. Using Bill.com, accounting firms can take a client's time-consuming, clunky, and manual AP process and transform it completely with automation, tracking, mobility, and transparency, setting the stage for more conversations about what else your accounting firm can do to help the client. To learn more about how Bill.com can help your firm offer client advisory services, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash bill. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash B-I-L-L. Bill.com, the intelligent business payments platform. A ransomware incident exposes patient information. So the article title here is Hacking of Accounting Firm Affects Medical Group. Uh-oh. So on December 7th, accounting firm BST Accounting Tax Advisory uh, got a virus, ransomware. Right? So they were infected. They had They're at their occur, office. At their office. And one of their clients is something called Community Care Physicians, PC, with 2,000 employees. Does it say where this was? This is an all. The firm is in Albany, New York. Okay. And I'm not sure where this network, it's one of those kind of big physician networks. They have uh, 80 locations, 30 specialties in eight countries. Okay. So this is a big client. Providing um, 
services, care services to hundreds of thousands of patients every year. So it's just this, you know, ripple, right? Like you think you're just getting hacked, but really patients down the line of a hospital may have had their data possibly exposed because of this hack. So, so here's my question right away. Did it say what kind of, of data, what kind of patient data was breached? Because my understanding of HIPAA rules, accounting firms aren't supposed to maintain any of that stuff in their systems. One of the reasons that it's hard to do accounting for medical practices is if let's say you're using QuickBooks, you're not supposed to have any patient names in the customer file in QuickBooks because that's personally identifiable information that you're not supposed to keep in a system that isn't rated for it, that doesn't have the HIPAA security requirements. Does that does this ring a bell? Yeah. So the 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 accounting firm, their investigators said that they could not confirm that the attackers obtain any individual personal information. But a security research actually uh, found there's a a ransomware gang website called Maze. Uh And they saw that some of the data out there is some backup database files included an image of a check made payable to a BST unit, one of the healthcare units. So at least Mm -hmm. one one image of a check was up there. Well, just another reminder to be really careful about what kind of information you've got. Yeah, and I didn't see anything that said how they got hacked, but I imagine it's it's that work backwards. Like it's probably somebody clicked an email. Somebody didn't have proper logins. They didn't. I'm on a bit. They didn't have. T- There's nowhere to say like, oh, nobody. You never see a thing where even though they had two factor authentication, they still <laughs> right. got broken into. Because like, it's it's so hard to hack somebody with two factor authentication. You might as well not even try as a hacker. You might as well just go for the low hanging fruit. There's too many easy people to hack. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it's just more warnings out there. Like, it's a big responsibility you have as an accounting firm to secure your systems. Those stories are always kind of a downer. So I've got something that's a little fun. All right. Those of you out there who want to someday make it to the CFO job, there's a uh, something you might do that's a little non-traditional to get there. <laughs> According to a CFO.com article, one way that you can get into the CFO position or advance your career is by getting a tattoo. Just uh. Like, I, like, a ta- like a tattoo of what, I guess, is I guess my, my thought here. Let me tell you. So Dave Rasjeda, Dave, uh, oh man, I don't even know how to say his name. R-A-S-Z-E-J-A. I'm just going to say Dave. He is taking on his first CFO role on March 1st at Penn Mutual Life Insurance, a $3.3 billion revenue company that manages some $33 billion in assets. He had been at Penn Mutual for four years when in 2005, at age 30, he donned a tattoo to memorialize his passion for mathematics. He got a tattoo of pi that goes around his upper arm, right? Like a bunch of the digits of pi. And he was sitting at lunch one day as a lowly actuary at Penn Mutual. And the CEO at the time, Robert Chappell, he had a habit of just randomly sitting down with people at lunch. So he sits down next to Dave and he asks what they did. He was with some friends. He asked what they all did and they explained they were actuaries. And then one of the guys at the table said, hey, this guy's got pie tattooed on his arm. Check it out. So the CEO asked to see it and uh, Dave rolled up his sleeve. And that is how he impressed the CEO who then relayed the story to the head of their investment function at that time, who contacted Dave and asked him to come for an interview at the hedging quantitative analysis position. That's how he got into like hedging and quantitative analysis because he's a math guy who had a tattoo of pie. The years passed and like that was that was how he got started. That's that launched his career. Now he's the CFO. 
So outside of Byron Patrick, who has a CPA tattoo. Yes. I think I saw on Twitter, and I don't know if it was Photoshopped or not. I've seen a, ta- uh, a photo of a woman that has debit and credit on her two elbows. I don't know oh. if, if it's Photoshopped or not. It, it was hard to say. Anything that comes from the Big Four account and Twitter account is questionable. Every single thing is questionable <laughs> uh, as far as being legitimate or not legitimate. Um, but do you know of anybody else in our industry that you've seen with some industry? Like, Does anybody have like a, an Excel macro or anything like that tattooed on them or, or table? Well, I know Madeline Pratt has tattoos, but I don't know if they're accounting or finance related. I, don't I think thought, so. I, but I think it's cool. It's like we shouldn't be afraid in the accounting and finance world to have a little personality, right? And maybe that involves some body art, or maybe it involves something else. But you know, I feel like this is like um, Garrett's. Uh, uh, who is it um, with the Green Apple Podcast? Um, John Garrett. John Garrett. Like this, he should be all over this because his show is all about standing out in a, you know, be a red apple in a green apple world or wait, is it be a green apple in a red apple world? Anyway, it's all about helping accountants and finance people stand out. And sometimes that something like that is all it takes to make you get that career opportunity. So if you have a tattoo that is accounting related, please tweet it at us so we can see this. My personal story is that I, I, I was a music major who then got into bookkeeping and got my CPA and got into accounting to make a living. <laughs> I love telling that story and it helps people remember who I am and have a story like that. But if any listener wants to get a cloud accounting podcast tattoo, you, you, I don't, I don't know level. if we should be hold encouraging this. <laughs> How many um, listeners do we have to get before you get one, David? That's my question. Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe soon here. We'll see. Soon enough. All I'm right. fragile though. I, 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 I don't have any tattoos. I, I just imagine it's going to hurt a little bit. I'm just, I can't do it. I hear it does hurt a lot. I was in New York City and it was too cold. Like I can't even handle that. Never mind. You know, it's a little windy and cold out and I, I can't handle it. Well, this this may not be the best time then to talk about the PCAOB or FASB, right? Given the, the pain. It's painful too. Yes. painful subject, right? Especially for non-accountants. But I'm, I'm going to put you through a little bit more of this, David. Did it get killed the, yet? Well, no, because again, this is just a budget proposal. There, as we discussed for a few minutes, Last week in our last episode, the Trump administration in their new budget proposal has said that they want to fold the PCOB into the SEC. So the the body that audits the auditors, the public company accounting oversight board is going to be, you know, become part of the Securities and Exchange Commission and save money that way. And not surprisingly, there were some folks who wrote articles saying this is a very bad idea. And I spotted two of them. Uh, Francine McKenna wrote an article on FT.com, Financial Times, which I guess is kind of confusing to me because are they even a U.S. publication? Like, I, I mean, they're a... I think they're Australian because I think I've read some things from their yeah. media property before. And so, like, this is somebody saying it's not a good idea to kill it? Yeah. So Francine McKenna, okay. she's she's been a critic of the big four auditing world for a long time. And she says that we should keep the PCAOB. But, but I thought it was funny because there's a paragraph in here where she says, quote, the PCAOB has not been the most effective regulator, it must be said, unquote. And I have to say, that's a giant understatement. Wouldn't you agree, David, given what we talked about last week, that the PCAOB has issued, what, less than one half of 1% of the fines that they could have over the last 16 years against the big four? I, I am all for effective regulation. My main complaint about this whole situation is that the PCAOB doesn't actually fine the big four. Uh, and so what use is all this, you know, this regulatory body if they're not actually going to enforce the law? 
They should either work for the benefit of the market or we shouldn't even waste our time. And in 16 years, when they've only issued you know $1.6 million of fines, like that just seems kind of silly to me. And I was sort of doing a little bit more homework on this, you know, wondering, well, why have they not issued that much in fines? Like, why, why wouldn't they do a better job? And another report by POGO, which is the Project on Government Oversight, which uh, is where I got this information from in the first place, they have an article on their site about how the PCOB is really a revolving door between the big four audit firms. I was just going to guess that. Yes. yes. All right. So this is called How Accountants Took Washington's Revolving Door to a Criminal Extreme. And <laughs> yeah, and um, I, I, you know, I didn't even read this whole thing. I was just prepping in advance of this show this morning. Um, this one stat that's just kind of amazing. Based on an analysis of profiles from the professional networking site LinkedIn, as of November 2019, it appeared that more than 40% of PCAOB employees had worked at the so-called big four audit firms, Deloitte, Ernst & Young, KPMG, and PricewaterhouseCoopers. So 40%. The big four overwhelmingly dominate auditing of the biggest corporations, right? So 40% of the PCAOB employees worked at the big four, and then there's a it's a revolving door thing, right? This, you go but work this at is the every PCAB. industry, right? At the government level, I think, right? The, yeah, but, the people right. that have to the environmental agencies that look over oil and gas, they're people that have through their gas, they're consultants in that industry, they've worked in that industry, and then they do this for two years and they go back to the industry. It's yeah. So, but this is like extreme, right? I mean, I, well, I think I don't. Th- our industry yeah. just does it better. Apparently, <laughs> we're very efficient at it, right? A search of LinkedIn turned up more than 340 people whose profiles said that they were currently employed at the PCAOB and that they previously worked for at least one of the big four. And then at the same time, LinkedIn profiles showed more than 160 people working for the big four who had previously worked for the PCAOB. And uh, for context, the staff of the PCAOB in 2019 was 838 people. So that's a lot of people who you know have big four backgrounds and are probably going to go back there. So think about it. It makes sense. Why would you want to find your employer who's going to give you some sweet job after you're done at the PCAOB. Exactly. You're not, you're not going to do it. So it means you to feed that story over to Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. They'll, they'll, they'll be going off on this. I mean, to me, this is, if you can't fix this, then it's not worth even having the PCAOB because then it's just an exercise in, it, it's just all for show. And we'll stick on a pig. It, it'd be better not to have it because right now it actually provides an excuse for the big four if there is another crisis or another Enron type situation, they'll say, "Oh, the PCAOB was here. They they said everything was fine, right? Or they didn't they didn't stop us." Sometimes having a regulator provides an excuse if it's an ineffective regulator. Uh, and I don't see any arguments from Francine McKenna. There's another article by Arthur Levitt, who was the chairman of the SEC um, a few decades ago, saying that we should keep it. But none of them have a solution to solve the problem to make it actually independent and effective. So maybe it's time just to bail on it. But I'd I'd love to hear from our listeners what you think, if there is a solution, a way that it could be made independent. We'll keep on uh, following the story. But this ties to the whole uh, deeper level, because I I think the UK is after gone after this, the whole problem of these firms are doing the audit work, but they also have their consulting division and they're double dipping from these companies and there's no real independence. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it all ties back to that because if there was independent auditing, you wouldn't even need this government decision. Yeah, here, here's my uneducated solution. Here's what I would do if I were in charge. I would say we don't. maybe we don't even need the PCAOB. What would be a better solution would be to ban audit firms from doing any other work for their clients. So if you're going to do audit, that's all you do. You can't do consulting. 
period. And then come up with a, a random or third-party selection process for those audit firms so that General Electric, General Electric doesn't get to decide who their auditor is. Somebody else picks the auditor for them because then there's more independence. Yeah. I think th- those two solutions alone would probably do a lot more than having you know, the PCOB in place. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> so, so, so that was my PCAOB follow-up. I've got, unbelievably, David, like my beat is just, it's so great this week. I've got FASB news too. Okay. And, and close to home, this is amazing. So this was an article in the Wall Street Journal called U.S. House Subcommittee Scrutinizes Accounting Rulemaker. And that title alone would make you fall asleep, <laughs> right? It's a House subcommittee. That's going to scrutinize FASB. But you know what got my attention right at the top was that this is an article with a picture featuring my congressman, Brad Sherman. There's what, like 500 something Congress people in this country? You should request lunch. You should request lunch. I know. When he's back in town in Encino, I think he covers like Sherman Oaks, Encino, the the valley, right? When he's in town, I want to to talk to him because- So he's heading this subcommittee. uh, I don't know if he heads a subcommittee, but like I'm going to assume so because why else would they be talking to him, right? So it's it's this subcommittee that I I bet nobody has ever heard of. It's called House Committee on Financial Services Subcommittee on Investor Protection. Financial Services Subcommittee on Investor Protection, Entrepreneurship, and Capital Markets. And the Wall Street Journal interviewed Brad Sherman- about how he wants to scrutinize FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board that sets the accounting standards in the United States, and the PCAOB more. They had their first oversight hearing in January, and Sherman questioned the chairman of the FASB, Russell Golden, and he questioned William Dunkey, chairman of the PCAOB, and they were grilling them about the new accounting standard on credit losses, which I have to admit I'm not familiar with, but apparently... You know, some politicians think that's going to have an unfair economic impact. And he wants FASB to reevaluate certain standards. And there are two things that are interesting to me in this article, very interesting. One is the response from the leadership at the AICPA and at CFA Institute was immediately, right? The, the quote in the article is from Barry Melanson, chief executive at the AICPA, the quote was, For auditors and others to maintain confidence in financial statements, the standard setting process should be free of outside influences. Basically saying like, don't meddle meddle with FASB, Congress. We don't need your outside influence. And then Sandy Peters, senior head of the financial reporting policy at the CFA Institute said, quote, exercising political power to bring FASB in front of Congress to get them to do what they want violates the independent standard setting process. So basically saying, hey, you know, these are independent groups and politicians shouldn't be getting involved. Which I, I, I kind of understand, right? Uh, somebody on Twitter said, you know, look at what happens when Congress gets involved in, you know, setting rules. That's, that's how we get our tax system, which is fair. Mm-hmm. We don't want Congress getting to that point with our fine accounting standards. But part of me says, maybe the reason that our accounting standards are so antiquated and are not that great in a lot of cases is because we don't have enough oversight. Right? Why is PCAOB so terrible at doing its job? Because we don't have enough oversight. Why is FASB so slow at changing accounting to work for a world of intangible assets? Because there's not oversight. It's just a bunch of accountants sitting in a room in accounting land, as Warren Buffett said, right? Uh, so you're saying we need oversight of accounting land. Like, like somebody needs to be the mayor of accounting land. And it needs to be a non-accountant, okay? It's just like the head of the military is the president 
not a general. It has to be somebody from outside. Otherwise, you get too wrapped up in the world that you're in. But here's what I really like. This was sort of buried in the article. It's, it's a quote from Brad Sherman. He said uh, that he wants to continue to follow up on FASB accounting standards, GAAP. There's two quotes that are really good here. One is, quote, if you control the definition of earnings per share, you control the vast majority of the important entities in the country. For FASB to exercise that much government power in what is a separate cloister is far away from democracy as they can possibly get. And then, this is relevant to that whole discussion we had last year about intangible assets and the book, The End of Accounting, and Research and Development. Uh, I'll just read this uh, paragraph from the article. Mr. Sherman said he hopes to push FASB to reevaluate certain standards, such as a longstanding rule requiring that companies expense research and development. He called the standard known as FASB number two, a quote, corrosive self-inflicted wound on the progress of humanity, unquote, that he claims doesn't give enough value to investments in R&D and discourages new private sector research. He said the rule should be changed to allow for money spent on R&D to be capitalized, which means the cost would be recognized gradually over a period of years as opposed to being expensed at the time the cost is incurred. This is exactly what we should be thinking about in the accounting world. This is, this is the oversight that we need. I'm so excited this is happening with my congressman just randomly I wasn't even following what he was up to in Congress. This is this is what he is doing. Maybe he's just pandering for your vote. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he got a wind of the podcast and um, decided, yes, that, that very important- Endorsement from Blake Oliver. I, I just, it's the coincidence is too amazing. But everyone likes to get down on Congress, but there are people in Congress doing good work. And, and this theme that I swear has just been hitting us in the face the last eight to 10 weeks, eight to 12 weeks, is just this like questioning of our the accounting's professional organizations, the value of accounting. Like it's just this drum just keeps beating harder and harder and harder and harder. And you're right, like somebody's going to have to step up and represent the industry to stop this slippery slide. It's just a slow decline into irrelevance is what we face if we don't do something about it. And I don't think that the change is going to come necessarily from within the profession. There's just too many people at the top invested in the status quo, making a lot of money. And and accounting is a conservative profession to begin with. I don't know what's actually going to make it happen. Podcast. More podcasts. More podcasts. <laughs> That's right. We're We're doing our part, David. So that is all of the big news that uh, was on my beat this week. I think we had maybe some smaller app updates if you want to touch well, on that. A kind of fun news that was very public. We talked about Gusto versus Rippling. Yeah, this I think this qualifies as app news, right? Yeah. So uh, Gusto, payroll product, Rippling, payroll product. Arguably, Rippling maybe is a slightly bigger market. Their play is you get hired, and that's the trigger and ripples everything else that goes on. So, oh, you got hired at this bigger company. You need a laptop. You need access to these six applications. You need to be assigned for the 401k. You need payroll. You need all these things, but it's all based starts from the hire, right? Well, Rippling put up a billboard. Before you get into that, I heard them described as onboarding software, which is something I'd never heard before. This kind of cool, right? It's like it's like payroll and benefits plus workflow. Well, plus every so like when you hire somebody at your company. You got to like create an email account for them. You have to, you have to do like 
a zillion things. A dozen things. Or yeah, it could take hours. Yeah. So so it's payroll, it's IT, HR, it's all these things you need to do. And in theory, you're gonna connect it all through APIs and you just so as soon as you and, and payroll is the first start, right? You invite the employee to create their account. So they're they're going from there. And then obviously everybody's super familiar with Gusto, who's listened to the show before. So they created a billboard and and the, go into this article if you're listening, go to the article, look at the billboard. There's just a lot of funny across the board. Um, so, and, and this was a billboard in San Francisco on the billboard in San Francisco on the 101 where all of these people at all these companies like see it every day. Yeah, I think actually that's a bit, it's the same billboard. Zero early on ran an uh, anti QuickBooks ad or something like that. Gotcha. Uh, right on the one. So, it's the same exact spot, I think. So, what did the billboard say? So, it said outgrowing gusto question mark, presto, changeo. And then rippling. And then, then says rippling. Yep. That's funny. Um, and the funny parts about this is so Gusto did not like it. And so Gusto sent Rippling a cease and desist order to take the billboard down. So then the, the lawyers for Rippling replied back with some more poetry. Do you want to read some of it? <laughs> our billboard struck a nerve, it seems. And so you phoned our legal teams who started shouting cease, desist, and other threats too long to list. Your brand is known for being chill. So this just seems like overkill. But since you think we've been unfair, we'd really like to clear the air. And it just goes on and on and on. So it's like two-page PDF of this poem that their legal team sent the other legal team, followed by historical cases of fair market competition with advertising and that type of stuff. And I think the the argument that Gusto was making, or the reason Rippling put up that billboard is because Gusto, admittedly, they say it themselves, they are not ideal for employers with more than 100 employees. That's not who they focus on. And so- Rippling saying, hey, we can handle that. Come to us. But then I guess Gusto, it's not a hard limit. Gusto can handle larger employers and they didn't like that marketing. So to me, this is funny because it shows just how insular the Bay Area can be with tech. Like, is this really making a difference? <laughs> you know, it's like, how much business is Rippling really going to get from this? And a lot, often you end up with a bunch of tech companies just selling to each other. Well, some of this is just ego. Yeah. I, I, most billboards are ego. Some of it's just the temperament of the people involved. Some of it is like things are getting serious. Like these companies have now grown to where you're not going to have these 100% growthers anymore. You're competing against each other, right? And so I don't know if you knew this or not, but- um, But see, that's not true. Like ADP paychecks are still so gigantic. They could be, this, yeah. is, this reminds me of like the Democratic primary right now where you have all these moderates splitting the vote. And if they just combine their forces, they could defeat Bernie Sanders and they're not going to do it. And that's like Gusto and Rippling right now. I can, you know. <laughs> and some of it's a little bit of culture. So the founder of Rippling, he used to be the founder of CEO of um, Zenefits. Right. And yes. so Zenefits did some questionable behaviors along the way on their, on their growth, right? He likes to poke the bear. Like I know Zenefits went hard at ADP before back in the day and had wars with them publicly. And I mean, even Gusto had a war with Zenefits publicly three, four weeks ago over the API stuff. So it's just... Arguably, Gusto's probably, as far as these payroll startups, is arguably kind of the hottest newest, the hottest number one, right? They're not ADP or paychecks level, but Gusto's arguably has done very, they're very, very successful, correct? I mean, yeah. arguably, they're going to get a target. Everybody's going to go after them. So, so it's, it's, I don't know, we, we've talked about it in a very boring way, but I'm telling you, go look at the images, go read the, the, the PDF. It's all on the show links. It's pretty funny. I, I think it's funny. So let's, let's talk about actual app updates. Friend of the show, Judy McCarthy, runs a practice management app called Client Hub for accounting firms. 
And I've always thought that's pretty cool because she was an actual practitioner who is solving a problem for you know herself and selling it now to other firms. And they recently released a new feature that uh, solves a pain point that I had when I was doing bookkeeping. It's a tool that allows accountants to automate resolving unclassified expenses. Client Hub now integrates with QuickBooks, can identify the unclassified transactions, and then you can send them through your client portal to your clients to ask them, what are these? And then get that information back and sync it back into the QuickBooks file. So something that used to be very annoying because you had to open up your email and put in a list of the transactions and say, dear client, please tell me what these are. And then they, of course, never get back to you. And you have to remember to follow up on that stuff. The idea being now you can automate that process directly from QuickBooks. Yeah. And then she creates it into like a, a ta- part of the task management, right? Yes, so you, yes. it limits a lot of steps because before you'd see the transaction, you make yourself a note, email the client about this. Now I have a task, follow up on the task. Did it get fixed from the client? And so it's kind of automated that process as part yeah. of the, the, the task management inside that app. I think, I think interesting thing you said, I know we were chatting with this a, a little bit before you were, you, you exciting to you because this is only a feature an accountant would create. <laughs> Exactly. Like all, all the folks who are from the developer side, the engineers, are, they all want to build machine learning and AI and automatically categorize transactions and not deal with workflow task management, right? Which is, I get it. It's boring. It's not that, it's not sexy, but this is the work that has to get done, the communication that has to happen. And there's really not a good solution for it right now. So this is pretty cool. Yeah, and I think uh, I saw another app that uh, was built to do this. And, and then I was thinking about it. Yes, it was built by an accountant as well. Like, so accountants are solving problems that they actually have. And sometimes these apps aren't. Yeah. Right? Um, do, do, am I crazy? Do I, I feel like there's something they talked about at QuickBooks Connect as a tool or something for accountants. They'd be adding directly in the QuickBooks Online Accountant Edition some like uncategorized yeah. transactions view. So you could quickly go in and for each client, organize them all or sort them. And you know, all that stuff, they always talk about it, but I feel like it gets the lowest priority. All those QBOA or zero HQ features. I mean, do you even remember zero HQ? Does that even ring a bell? Because they released that years ago and it's just sort of like, I don't know if people are using it because it, it it's really hard to get it right. To make it so it actually saves you time is really hard. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of apps, they, they start building those portals for accountants and then they lose interest and it just never gains big adoption. So, yeah. yeah. I have uh, QuickBooks news. Okay. So this, this is about two weeks old, this blog post, but I, I finally saw it live in the field and uh, I had a chance to digest and think about it. So QuickBooks is uh, evolving their UI, QuickBooks Online is. And essentially what they're doing is they're creating two views of QuickBooks Online. One is going to be called the business view, and the other view is going to be called the accountant view. So when I log in as an accountant, I might see something completely different than my client. That's correct. With the premise being like, hey, you're the accountant. You're going to think about things differently. Like you need access to a journal entry. Yeah. Maybe the small business owner doesn't need access to journal entries, right? And, and technically, it's very easy to do something like this, right? You're just changing the, money, the, the menus around. The code's still the same. It's still the same QuickBooks. Right, yeah. um, but new businesses that get on QuickBooks Online from the default, they're going to get this new business view, and it's so it's uses terms like money in, money out. Hey, that sounds familiar. That's what Zero right. did. Make, make <laughs> a sale, send an invoice. So it's so it's so it's those type of verbiage and that terminology, and then but you can as the accountant flip the view over for your client, 
So that way you and the client are on the same view. Oh, see, that's good. Cause that, that was what I was anticipating would be, I was going to say, this is my concern is that it's already confusing enough when Intuit rolls out features to clients and then the accountant doesn't have it yet. And the client is asking, Hey, what is going on with this? I, I like, and the accountant has no idea what they're talking about. If they had a different view completely, how do you support them? And, and what's good about this blog post, like, I don't, I'm not sure who, sometimes on these Intuit blog posts, it doesn't say who wrote it, just as like editor's note, um, is they give all the screenshots. They have a table that shows here's what's called in business view. Here's what's called an accountant view. So you, so you can really get up to speed on this. Like it's really been communicated very, very well by Intuit. It's pretty impressive the way they've, uh, they've this blog post is out here. But really stepping back and looking at this at a higher level, this might be the first step to killing QuickBooks self-employed. Because QuickBooks self-employed is really about this money in, money out, mm-hmm. right? It, it's really geared towards the non-accountant small business owner that doesn't even know accounting exists. Yep. Right, and, and and a lot of times it's built for those people that even commingle their business and personal finances in the same bank account. But QuickBooks self-employed is built on top of Mint. It's not part of the QuickBooks data set. Mm-hmm. So that's why a developer, if they have an API, they can't read data from somebody in QuickBooks self-employed. Got it. This is also why somebody with QuickBooks self-employed really can't migrate to QuickBooks Online. This might be the trigger that lets into it. Hey, they get the, the the UI down, and then now they can actually just have one. One code base, because that takes away, right? If you're building a separate product for self-employed people, separate code, separate engineering efforts, that takes away from you building other features. So if they can get that into one code base for QuickBooks Online, that's just everybody wins over that over the long term on that. I couldn't agree more. Well, that's all the time we've got for this week. Actually, I should ask, did we get any reviews this week? We did get a review. A must listen for everyone in the accounting industry. Five stars. This is on Apple Podcast. I'm surrounded by accountants every day. I work in an accounting firm, so my colleagues are accountants. Not only that, our clients are also accountants who outsource their clients' bookkeeping work to us. Plus, our firm is searching for other tech-savvy accounting firms to acquire. So it's really helpful for me to stay up to date on the latest news and trends in the world of cloud accounting. The knowledgeable hosts, David and Blake, make it easy and fun. Almost tempted to start requiring that all my employees at Books Time listens to it. And that's from Jesse at Books Time via Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much, Jesse. Sorry about that. The paste I have in, um, instead of having oh, I see. punctuation, it has all the HTML raw code. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like That was a challenge. Uh, you did you did admirably uh, well. Uh, I didn't say like, and pound thirty-nine. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody else should also, if you've noticed, we've been doing classified ads now at the end of the podcast. So if you haven't heard them, listen till the end and they actually work. Liz Mason put a classified ad in. She was looking for help and she got a resume sent to her for her. Uh, she was looking for a bookkeeper. That was great to hear. Uh, where can people reach you, David, if they're interested in putting in a classified ad or just talking, you know, getting to know you? Easiest ways on Twitter. I'm at David Leary, but I feel like a lot of our listeners aren't on Twitter and I've been getting a lot of people uh, reaching out on LinkedIn lately. So you can also find me on LinkedIn at David Leary. You can look for me, Blake Oliver CPA on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter at Blake T. Oliver. And if you want to leave us a review, we really appreciate those. We will read it on the air. You can do that on Apple Podcasts in the app, or you can head over to, what's that link, David? Podchaser.com. Go to Podchaser, search for the Cloud Accounting Podcast, leave a review, and that will go on to all of those non-Apple Podcast players, and we want to get reviews in both spots. So, All right, that's it for me, David. Until next week. Bye. Time for the classifieds. 
Hyrock Accounting is searching for rock stars. We are a growing accounting firm looking to increase our team. Our ideal candidate will be self-motivated, eager to learn, and grow with the firm. We help businesses succeed by utilizing cutting-edge technology to provide accounting solutions that increase business efficiency and competitiveness. Our goal is simple, enhance accounting operations, improve accuracy, and reduce costs. As a High Rock star, you'll be responsible for full-cycle accounting in a cloud environment. Email careers at highrock.co. That's careers at highrock.co. One of the biggest hurdles accounting firms face is finding training that is current and relevant. There is an answer, Elephant Training. Elephant offers webinars and training on Xero, QuickBooks, and cloud-based apps and modern practice management issues like remote leadership and creative compensation. Their instructors are firm owners who also happen to be international experts in cloud accounting. This year, Elephant is offering recordings of their most popular webinars, plus valuable resources in their brand new learning library. You can use code CAP20 for 20% off your subscription. Bulk licenses for firms are also available. Visit elephanttraining.com for more info. That's elephanttraining.com. Are you looking for more great cloud accounting content? Ryan Lazanis started and sold his old cloud accounting firm in just five years. Now he helps firms stay on the cutting edge through his free weekly email curating the top five pieces of content that help modernize your firm. Visit futurefirm.co slash cloud accounting to sign up. That is futurefirm.co slash cloud accounting. Accountants and bookkeepers, are you itching to make a career pivot and escape the nine to five grind in the busy season stress and start to build your own career path where you work virtually on your own terms? Then you need to get your copy of the newly released Bookkeeping Side Hustle Guidebook and learn actionable steps to become a virtual bookkeeper without the overwhelm. Cloud Accounting Podcast listeners can get the ebook for 30% off with the code CAP30OFF. Get your copy at bookkeepingsidehustle.com forward slash bookkeeping dash guidebook. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.